I see him moving. I just don't hear him. How's that? Hear him now. Frankly, when I moved here from up north, it was to semi-retire, build my dream home, and raise my kids. But as a commercial and engineering-grade AC professional, I was shocked at how badly the AC was screwed up in my dream home. I had to totally re-engineer the system just to be comfortable at night and prevent mold from growing. And it wasn't just my house. The residential AC companies in town don't know how to spec or install systems for Florida's climate. It seems ridiculous, but it's true. They all slapdash install the same stock system here as they do in Connecticut or California, and it just doesn't work. So after my neighbors had me redo their AC systems, word got out about an AC guy who actually knew how to make systems work in Florida. And every Tom, Steve, and Susie brought me to the AC problems no one else could fix. And that's how Griffin Service became the home of the Florida-rated AC system. I'm Tom Casey, and if you want an AC service that's Florida-rated, I'm your guy, and Griffin's your company. GriffinService.com For business owners, by business owners, this is the Primed Income Podcast. All right, so the intro of Tom Casey. Tom was a client for a time, and it happened just right before the old pandemic. Then as things would happen, we did a great job with his business. He did a great job with his businesses. He came down to Florida after semi-retiring in Connecticut, looked around, said the air conditioning companies here suck. I'm going to start one and tell them all how to do it. That's pretty much exactly what he did. Hit a very large, very unsophisticated market and really just started to own the world. And within a very short period of time, all of the guys who'd been there forever and a day started doing as Tom does. It was great. It was a lot of fun to watch. And the fun thing about him is anytime you introduce a topic, if you found it interesting enough and a way to make it successful, he would go forth and make it happen. Probably one of the most fun clients I've ever dealt with. One of the very few who would take the idea all the way to fruition when he decided that that's what he was going to do. Very often people say, oh, that's a great idea. We should do that. And then they forget all about it. And that's just the opposite of the person Tom is. So uh, since then, we, you know, we've made friends. Sometimes we bullshit. Sometimes we'll have a beer. Sometimes we talk business. That's a great thing about Developing a relationship with a guy like Tom is just something you don't walk away from. You just kind of hang on together, see what happens next. I don't know if I did a good job introducing you, Tom. <laughs> I appreciate but, it. Uh, I said nothing but good things. We'll save the bad things for those beers that we're going to drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for the next time we go and have salad. <laughs> I'm born and raised in Milford, Connecticut, which is just about an hour north of New York City, but spent a lot of time moving around with divorced parents. And uh, I went to 13 different schools through grade 12. And I spent four years in the same high school to give you sort of the idea of how often we were um, moving. And we often were moving in the uh, the dark of night because you don't realize it when you're a kid, but we hadn't paid the rent apparently. And we had to kind of go to the next place. My dad was uh, estranged for a bit of time, just parents of those age, you know, those days when they were divorced, it just wasn't as harmonious or or whatever it is, modern days. I moved out of my house when I was 15 years old, rented a room, basically drove my motorcycle year round in Connecticut, 365 to school, uh, which was a fun experience in winter. Uh, My dad kind of came back to my life full time when I was 16 years old and 
we got to, you know, rekindle a lot of things and having been going to the shop when I was a kid and sweeping floors and emptying garbage cans. And there was a kind of a period of time then going back and actually working side by side. I worked nice weekends, summer breaks, everything I could to work. And then when I was graduating school, uh, I just wanted to take a year off to hang out with my dad and, you know, just kind of explore that stuff. And uh, so I took a year off from college and here it is, you know, uh, 38 years later and I'm still, I'm still on my year off. So <laughs> it's been a pretty good year off. Transition to the business full time, working and my dad in the business when I came in, it was kind of a, a family business then, but it was sort of a dysfunctional family business. It was my dad and my uncle. And my dad was was handling sort of the buildings and houses side of HVAC. And my uncle was handling the transport refrigeration side of the business, which is like uh, ice cream trucks, refrigerated trucks, uh, semi-trailer air conditioning. So you couldn't be more opposite in terms of focus. Uh, one's very transient clients coming through, stopping because their truck isn't cooling properly. And the other one were going to people's houses and buildings. So there was a point in time I had worked for a, a while and the, the dysfunction of the family business uh, wasn't for me. So I went out and uh, actually applied for jobs to go work someplace else. And one of my dad's friends, who's the service manager for another company, called and said, hey, your, your kid applied for a job and I would hire him. But do you know he's applying for jobs? So that evening was an interesting conversation. And my dad was kind of like, listen, you stayed to do this with me. And that's what I want to do, too. Keeping in mind, literally, we're like doing for the whole year, I think $160,000 maybe in change. So it was very small, small business. So I had this brilliant idea to go to the uh, the attorney that my dad and uncle used and just explain to him my problems and said, uh, what can we do? And so I called the meeting with my dad and my uncle and the attorney, and at which point the attorney and I presented that we're going to split the business into two. My dad's going to own two thirds of what we called commercial, and my uncle's going to own two thirds we call truck and trailer, and they'll own a third of each other's business. At which point, I'm going to purchase the third interest in my uncle's business from my dad and trade it for the interest that my uncle holds in my dad's business. Thereby, my uncle gaining 100% ownership of truck and trailer, and my dad and I being two third to one third in our business. Keep in mind, I'm like. 20 years old when this is all going down. So I have no idea what I'm doing. Thankfully, there's a lawyer that's like interpreting what I want to take place. Did that. Then the next thing was to negotiate with my dad and say, okay, I want to purchase a share every year to the point at 51% because I just did this. Now I want to have a future where I can, you know, as you transition, I can control my destiny. And that's actually how we got even into this odyssey of air conditioning was like, hang out with your dad, family problems, split the business in two, make the deal. And back in those days, it was literally on call 365, doing everything, having an old school dad who never marketed, never did anything, trying to to learn a business. Those days were such that um, adult education at night, there was no such thing as computers. So I went to adult education and just lied about my birth year. So I was started as when I was a junior in high school, I was going to edu- uh, adult classes with people trying to learn the trades. And I just changed the, you know, the last digit of my, my license. So when I graduated high school, I had all my apprenticeship education done and all my apprenticeship time served. So I was able to take my test at 18 years old. And uh, today they would never fly, right? Because they'd have everything computerized. And 
So I don't know, just something in there was like having grown up the way I did and been on my own uh, early. It was just like this uh, dog on a bone mentality. Like when I set my brain on it and my mind on it, I was going to do whatever it took to get there. So we started with the AC business and um, separated it out. So the family was on good terms because they weren't mixing and fighting who was making money, who wasn't making money. But even still, my dad and I had a lot of conflicts. Uh, I do give my dad a tremendous amount of credit because he he kind of got something here and he was like, you need to take it further. So he gave me opportunities to get education. He sent me to work for friends of his for like months at a time and he's paying me, but I'm like working in a sheet metal shop, learning how to fabricate sheet metal. We don't do that, but you need to know about it. Sending me to work, you know, and do those kind of things. That's the the genesis, if you will, of our story. Uh, and then we started to move and uh, I was listening back in the day when there was only, there was no like web things and uh, there wasn't even fax or email, right? You, you, if you're going to go to a seminar, you had to get on a plane and go out there and then carry back your books. And they had these things called cassette tapes we would listen to. They didn't even have video tapes at the time. So I was buying up like all of uh, Doc Rusk. That's a blast from the way back past, one of the original godfathers of our trade, buying all his tapes and books and reading and listening and trying to go implement things. And it was a dynamic where my dad would be like, service agreements don't work and this doesn't work and that doesn't work. So I remember the first service agreements we did, I purchased them my own. I paid for them out of my own money. I remember very distinctly, they were like 230 bucks. And my dad's like, you're losing, you're burning your money, you're wasting your money. Then we sold a bunch of service agreements. And my dad was like, whoa, these things are pretty good. And that was sort of the first new idea stepping out where my dad was like, I'm going to trust some of your instincts here and, and try new things where I wouldn't take it. And so we started building at the time when we were doing that business. It's going to sound crazy, but we didn't do any installation whatsoever. We wouldn't replace a furnace. We wouldn't replace an AC. All we did was pure repair in an AC business, as crazy as that sounds, pure repairs only. And so then I went through engineering school, through ACCA, and I went up to Carrier for like a six-week intern program to learn all engineering and just spent probably a year plus getting all that. And then went and started subcontracting out. That was the first step. Like, let's subcontract this out instead of giving the leads away for nothing. Why don't we sell the equipment? Why don't we do the design? Hire somebody to do it. And that was really tricky because these are all my dad's old-time buddies. And now at this point, it's probably like 21, 22 years old. And now I'm giving designs over to guys who've been in the trade for 35, 40 years and been using rules of thumb. And they're pushing back like, we're going to do it our way. And I'm, you know, I'm having to have a confrontation in my early 20s. Like, no, actually, I'm hiring you. This is my design. This is how I want it done. And that was kind of my first unofficial experience to like, well, how are you, why are you guys saying, you know, this size or this capacity or this duct or this pipe? Is there a reason? Well, we always put in that size. Well, here's how we engineer it. Uh, you're just overkill. You're, and so that just kind of taught me like early on, like, wait a minute, a lot of stuff's just getting done wrong. So that led to eventually bringing installation in house and just subbing out sheet metal. And then I ended up putting up, I put a, a father son team into the sheet metal business. I bought all their equipment and they just paid me a loan that ended up that washed out after a few years. So I bought a whole new set of equipment and brought it in house. And so probably, you know, after about six or seven years of working, we were now officially a real contractor doing service and installation. But at the time we also did commercial refrigeration. So I ended up looking at that going, we have 
we're now suing, serving two worlds with our own business. That's very difficult to pay attention to homeowners or building owners and go into kitchens and talk about ice makers and whatever commercial equipment. So we, we walked away from that business entirely, the refrigeration business. The sheet metal thing and, and that the engineering is going to be super important. And I want to come back to that in a minute, but I want to back you up just a little bit because it's important to understand when you're getting that trust from your dad, mm-hmm. your dad is not the most, what we call trusting person no. <laughs> on the planet. Yeah, no, definitely not. How did you earn your dad's trust so, so well? Was it because he had to come back and get back into your life that he felt like he just needed to kind of help listen? Or was he really just trying to support you and do what you, you know, in, in your endeavor or what, what was it that, can you identify it? Yeah, it's none of those things. Uh, my dad is raised in a, a tough Irish Catholic family. In a, my grandparents owned a you know businesses delivering coal and ice, and then fuel oil. So he grew up working in the in the heating trades, uh, and then learned AC and refrigeration in the '60s. My dad is all about you earn respect, you earn trust, and so I had to like go through the gauntlet of all the shittiest things and shittiest jobs and working for less money and it was really good and humbling as a boss's son. He was really keen on, I don't want anyone to ever think you got this handed to you. And so it would be essentially he'd throw a challenge out and I would have to overcome it. Over time, he just started to see that he couldn't discourage, he couldn't challenge me in anything that I wouldn't win or I wouldn't, wouldn't accomplish. And so that built the trust. And then he started to get excited because, you know, as I'm accomplishing things and I'm like, we can do this and we can do this. And these are things he never thought about. He pretty much identified, I think, early on that that wasn't his thing. He was very comfortable being old school. His peers who were in the business and had sons, those sons were held back and he promoted me up. But it started off by just basically busting ass and and doing the work. I mean, like going to school, you know, I was in high school playing sports going to adult education three nights a week, working on weekends. And he, he waited till I proved that I would do things and I would accomplish things before he kind of passed over that trust. And then he passed it over in pieces, right? Now you've kind of earned this much trust and you earn this much trust, you earn this much trust. Uh, I wasn't going to give you anything. Hell no. I, I, I purchased the business. Like the, there was not like a gift here, you inherit the business. It was his words were always sweat equity. We're partners and he would take the money and I would do the work. And that was like the payment of earning was one shares per year. And honestly, there was never like the sophistication of what's the value or how much is it worth? It was just like whatever he says, whatever he takes, that's the price. That's the ticket to ride. And I just did it and never bitched about it. And then, you know, um, as we got to be more contemporaries and peers and then I started to do more things and we started to put things in place, then it was more equal. You know, we're distributing money equally. We're making decisions equally. We're having conversations, you know, as a team versus a father and a son. So I'm going to give some context to the kind of person that we're talking about. You shared me, shared with me a story when you were a teenager about somebody running out of gas. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing that story? Yeah, well, it's, it just goes to kind of the old school guy my dad was and is to this day. 
So again, those days, there's no cell phones. There's no, there's not even beepers at this point, right? It's shortwave radios. And you have to be on the radio to like know what's going on. So there's a radio call comes through to my dad's truck saying, hey, such and such ran out of gas. Can you help him out? So we go back to the shop. My dad says, run in and grab a gas can. I come back and the gas can's empty. And my dad's like, perfect. We drive out there to the job. He rolls down his window, you know, the old hand crank style window, holds the can out, gives the can to the mechanic. And the mechanic says, Mr. Casey, the can's empty. And my dad said, if you're stupid enough to run out of gas, you're stupid enough to fucking walk for gas. And we drove away. Like that was the end of it. There was no like, like we didn't even, how easily we could have stopped and filled this tank and give him the gas. But he was like, nope, this guy needs to walk and learn that you don't run out of gas. The guy didn't have a car and the closest gas station was how far away? I don't know, but it wasn't close. So um, (laughs) there was things like that with my dad that I just witnessed uh, probably the first week I was working around a commercial roof and the apprentice who was with him was doing something silly. And I just kind of was like, hey, dad, what's up with that? And he was like, he threw that guy off the roof and said, get out of here, go home. You're done for the day. The guy came back and said, well, how do I get back to the shop? Because we were across town and my dad's like i don't care if you walk but just get off the fucking roof and so he was just like that real hardcore 60s kind of old school boss so if you you wanted his respect you had to earn it by not screwing things up taking initiative all that kind of stuff so that's that's what i did the reason i'm following up and chasing that down not only so you can hear how he's actually grown up and how it affects who he is today i was on we were on the phone a few years ago and he's like, God damn it. And he told us that the day before, one of his repair techs had gone out and fixed everything perfectly. But he'd screwed up the thermostat. If I recall correctly, he had just mounted it ugly or wrong or didn't program it with, or didn't, the programming wasn't 100%, whatever it was. So Tom went over there and fixed it to where the customer was like, oh, yeah, everything's perfect now. And Tom got on the phone and fired the guy who had done the job 100% perfect. That's the effect of how he grew up. Because you can't get all the way to that point to what the customer sees and then and then just drop your pants in the performance, right? Tom, am I right about how, how that went down? Yeah, the one factor that's kind of important is um, when the issue came up, I gave the technician an opportunity to go fix it. Like, hey, Joe, Bob and Mary called up. They have this issue, you know, I need you to run by and take care of that last call when you finish up, whatever. And the technician refused to go. So oh, yeah. that was like, well, we'll wait till tomorrow. It's it's after, you know, he's like one of those, I worked all day kind of thing. I'm like, no problem. We said we're going today. I'm going today. And then it was like, if you don't care enough about your own career, our customer, our company, that's just not the integrity that we, we want. So um, it's just not a fit. It's not like a, you know, good, dirty, rotten. It's just a very, I think most people in my world, firing is a very simple thing because they've, they already know <laughs> they're, they've already, they know they've crossed the line. We're very aggressive with our core values. We're very empathetic and uh, understanding of people. But uh, I definitely, I would say from my, my dad and my grandma, I, I learned like, you know, almost the old saying you hear, like, if you don't stand for anything, you'll fall for anything. So all along in our career, from my involvement in the business of my dad, we've always had like a, a core values of how we're going to do things. And uh, it's it's kind of back to the 
if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right type of thing. And I made my name standing up to these older gentlemen because I was a young guy. That same roof, that first roof that week where the guy got thrown off and told to walk to the shop, that was a building I took over, a large manufacturing plant. I was young. I was working there 18, 19 years old. And they were like, I'm on this huge pieces of equipment and they didn't trust me. So we had a parts runner who was a retired guy in this early 70s. Uh, and they would send Mr. Ed to go with me to the factory. And he didn't know anything about Erickson. And the plant manager would talk to him. And everyone talked to him. <laughs> and it was just because I was so young. But it was part of getting good young and challenging older people who I respected, by the way. But it was just like, I was always the, um, why? Show me how. Like, I want to know. And if it's the old answer, we've always done it that way. Well, then I'm going to go to get a book. I'm going to go find somebody and I'm going to be an expert on that thing. Like my youth of learning in the truck when I was running calls during high school and running calls after I graduated, if I went to a any service call and I couldn't fix it and I got stumped, I would go to a supply house, get the manuals of whatever product control, whatever I didn't know. And that night I would study and master that control or that topic and then go to the next day and repair it. So I like learned by failure. Every failure has a seed of success in it. I would take every failure that, oh, I don't know what to do here. And I would go and the next day I return and be like, at least that one thing was clear. There may be another hurdle behind it, but I just had this like undying thirst for not being in the dark and not getting beat. I just refuse to lose. Every, every trade has a shoulder season, right? Mm -hmm. It's an unavoidable shoulder season. There's nothing you can do about it. Sometimes you find some things that you can do to uh, offset it a little bit. That time back then when we had one of our first shoulder seasons together in Florida. And that was doing the ductwork in a shoulder season that really floated all of us at a very crucial time and nobody else was doing it when it was something that had to be done. So I don't want to tell the story. I'd rather you talk about, you follow that train of thought up to what we did. Then when you added that in, you said, Hey, I want to do this. And we started doing it. Suddenly the whole world was needing duct work and every other air conditioning guy in Jacksonville was trying to do duct work too. The trades, all of them, whether they're AC, heating, plumbing, electric, there's a holistic view and that's what I learned kind of early on is to do the holistic thing, not just change a box, not just do whatever. We found in doing that, we were having better conversations. And so when we got to Florida, we didn't come down here to be in the trades. We came down here to semi-retire. We built a dream house and our, our own AC in our dream house, which they wouldn't let us install, was a train wreck. And the duck hook was terrible. We had water leaks through the ceiling three times. We had mold abatement the first year from water leaks in the, in the wall. We had uh, just everything could go wrong. What I started to learn is at the time, no one here was really taking the time to do anything but use rules of thumb. And so when we decided to go in business, one of the focuses was we're going to take an approach, a holistic approach. And we ended up calling it our Florida rated system. So we put engineering principles behind all the aspects of what a system in Florida would need from an engineering standpoint including the airflow, including the ductwork. And we just started to have those conversations. And in this part of the world, which I knew I was new to at the time, there would be like, well, no one else talked about ducks. No one else quoted ducks, no one else, anything with ducks. And even if they were doing it, they were delaying it and not doing it to another time. And we just made the commitment that if 
Bob and Mary need, need ductwork as part of their right solution. We're going to do the entire solution now. It's hot. It's attics in Florida. We get it, but it's right. It's right. Let's take the precautions. Let's, let's solve the problem of doing it. And we just started telling people about airflow. And I remember the campaign was shrinkage because of everyone using yeah. the wrong size of uh, ducks. And all of a sudden people were calling up saying, I want one of those Florida rated AC systems. And so to this day we do, we don't do new construction whatsoever, but on a retrofit basis, we probably do more duct work modifications or upgrades or full replacements than, than any other person in town here. You know, we go in and with the boom of construction, uh, we talked about this many times. We're very excited about the construction because we call it inventory. They've put in all these horrible missized, installed incorrectly, laid out poorly jo- uh, jobs. And so the customer would never choose the system the builder cheaped out on for them. So we get to go in after the fact once that first or second year warranty's over and then they're just so pissed off. They can't cool this. They can't heat that. This problem, that problem. We're like, yeah, we have the solution and we get to go in and do the do the full uh, solution. I like there. how you call it. That's so funny. Inventory, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's, I always said it's it's a Florida thing, but reality is it's, you know, a builder, a builder in a new neighborhood thing. Mass builder. There's so many things that they leave out that, or they cut around. It's like, uh, how, how am I, what am I going to exclude? So the idea you, you're calling it inventory. <laughs> we just call it cheap work, whatever, but inventory is fantastic. It starts with like what type of contractor or what type of business you want to be, right? Whatever trade you're in. I'm in the contracting trade. So I'm like, what kind of AC guy do I want to be? What kind of plumber do I want to be? What kind of electrician do I want to be? Then once we define that out, we can then build everything around the whole story, the whole messaging, all the standards and the production and everything to fulfill being that type of an AC guy. So we decided, you know, we used to always say when we first started uh, a little over six years ago here in Florida, we don't want to be the biggest, we just want to be the best. And a lot of people say that, but we were like, you know, we were committed to in Connecticut we had utility companies who competed with us. That was, you've seen that in the markets where you have these big giant utilities with limitless budgets competing with you. We would they would bring us in to solve problems that they they couldn't solve. They got to the point where this was to me a very sincere compliment. I would go meet and train their sales departments on like what to look for and things like that. And they said, "We know when we walk in the basement, it's a Casey job. We we just can see from across the basement the craftsmanship and the work that." your company did it. And that was sort of how we, how I always approached it from the beginning, even when we were like teeny tiny, small, like at least just like, wow, every single job and every single customer. And in Connecticut, before I moved down, like we didn't market hardly at all. You know, Joe, like our marketing budget was like 1%. Everything was word of mouth and referral. Everybody knew if you want this done, call Casey, you want that done, call Casey. And so coming to Florida where no one knows us, we had to come out of the gate very strong with that same, is that our identity? Our identity is to be competent, the best. And and Jeff and Gary and you really pulled that out of us. And that was probably the time I realized like the psychology and the marketing science behind how we've always operated was we did take that approach of right or not at all. And I would say when people come to me and ask me, you know, for advice and business coaching or whatever. It's just like define who you are, have a purpose. If you want to be the low price leader, then stop talking about being the best and the highest quality. Let's talk about being the best price. We have the cheapest price in town and own it. 
you can't serve two masters in that stuff. And so I think I had it with my dad. It drove me personally. It drove me into business. It drove my businesses having a purpose and, and just standing for it and not compromising on it. Who we hire from everyone's desperate for help. You know, we never are started our, our training system and started to build our own guys and just find really good humans who have that burning desire now at this point, we test them out. We do a culture code test and and see how they fit. Do they have the, like the the raw material to be that person that we can invest in and train in who will move forward? Because we're going to ask a lot of you. One of the things I got from my, my dad and grandma that I say to this day is, why would we invest in you if you won't invest in yourself? You know, where you're asking us to spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy, and that you don't go home and watch a class. You don't, you know, you don't crack a book. You don't, you don't do anything. Uh, if you, if you have a little extra time in the day, you don't run over to see what Joe's doing. So you know how to do that. If you're just want to learn by osmosis, you're probably not going to get very far with, within our team. And as you were talking about the low price guy, I do remember we first got together. You said, Oh no, this guy's taking a bunch of stuff. He's taking a bunch of clients because he is the low price guy. He guarantees the low price. And he actually does a pretty good job. <laughs> we did have that guy competing against us. The one thing that you decided was to go the exact opposite direction of being the low price guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to pay you the low price. I'm going to tell you I'm the high price. You weren't afraid of that at all. No, we we knew, and you guys reinforced that. You know, the during it's, it's right now even happening. So everybody's in recessionary thinking and inflationary thinking and how to cut and what to cut and they're going to cut benefits. They're going to cut marketing. They're going to cut lifeblood force things in their business. We always felt like the best brands don't have recessions. They don't, they don't suffer. And so we study those brands. Like they don't cut back. They're not going to cut the quality of uh, a Rolls Royce or a Rolex or a Tiffany diamond. They're going to stand on their, core value, their purpose, and just say, yeah, it's more money because it's worth more money. And so we have very transparent conversations about that. We're more, but it's because it's worth more, we do more. And it gets pretty logical. Like no one's going to buy anything cheaper than us. Yeah, we're buying name brands. We're buying high quality stuff, but no one's going to beat us in terms of what we pay for that piece of equipment. Because we're, this past year, we were top 50 in the country for the number of units we bought. So we're going to pay less for equipment, less for insurance, less... We'll be honest with you and say, Joe, you know, we will truthfully tell you, we do pay our men more because we have the best men and women. So they do earn a little bit more. It's a couple bucks an hour. It's not going to make the difference in your job. So if somebody's that much cheaper, you've got the tough decision or the tough job of deciding why we're doing more. And you just have to figure out what we're doing and what they're not doing. And is it worth it to you? So if there's price separation, it's because they're not doing the same job. Or they're stupid. And in fairness, some business owners just don't know how to make any profit. And I would and come on by my shop. I'll teach you how to do it. Like you can compete with me. I'll teach you how to price it right. So at least you're in the market pricing it right. But um, I think most businesses uh, in our trades in particular, they move into business after being a tradesperson. And the expression was always, uh, you ride a toolbox into business so you can fix anything, but you have no idea and no, no real experience or right to be in business. And so you if you're you're making thirty dollars an hour and now you're charging forty dollars an hour, you're rich. Well, that's until you've hired your first employee and rent a building and start doing marketing and learn out that, that you're losing money. So business is not taught 
really anywhere in the trades and no one's taking those lessons before they go into business. I got a call from uh, a friend of mine who was on the local association board of directors. And he said, uh, Hey, we had a little small talk. And he says, uh, we were talking about you last night at the meeting. I'm like, Oh, good or bad. He goes, it wasn't good. And so we start talking about what they were talking about. And so he's like, we're talking about your radio ads. And they asked me to give you a call and see if you would stop running these controversial ads. It's making us look bad. The competitors look bad. I said to the gentleman, like, let me think about it. Is anything in the ads untrue? Do we make any mistruths or misstatements? There's everything factual. And it was all about this. It was actually about the ductwork ads. We were running those at the time, the shrinkage ads and all that stuff. He said, no. I said, uh, let me think about it. Um, I could give you your answer now. How about you guys just get fucking better? I'm charging more money than all of you. I'm beating you on jobs. I'm doing more work than you're doing. And your request is that we dumb it down. Like you, you sh- I think your meeting should be thanking me that we're adding all this on to your market. That's your market. I'm brand new here. At the time, I was like, I think fourth year in business. You're having an association meeting to bitch about me talking about doing a better job. Like that still to this day is like one of the things like if I get my butt kicked, I'm happy to get my butt kicked. I want to learn so I can go back and kick butt on them. Most markets don't evolve like that. They're just comfortable rinse and repeating things. I remember that story so well because this association, this other group of air conditioning guys get together and we need to uh, have a conversation with Tom about what he's saying about our industry. <laughs> and the other guys, oh yeah, well, I'm close to him. I'll, I'll make it happen. And Tom tells him, um, fuck off. <laughs> we had a new plumber enter the market two years ago and we see them this past year at some industry event. The guy just starts railing on our pricing for being higher. And I will tell you, we're not the most expensive in town. We're not the cheapest in town. We're priced accurately based on business principles. We know financially how to be priced. This guy's ranting and raving. And I finally, I'm like, can I just maybe introduce a different way of thinking about it? I get your, your prices beat ours every time. I get it. But do you think instead of being upset about it, maybe you should raise your prices? Maybe I'm bringing you the gift of making more money. And that guy is not a dumb person in the sense like he's smart at trade and he's got his business. And But I don't know, just you're so focused on the wrong things. I would always say this. You can't out Griffin Griffin and I can't out XYZ XYZ. Just let's do what we do. Let's be who we are. Let's let's have real clarity on that. The reality of it is everything else is a fuck off moment. Like, hey, I don't care what the other guys are doing. Enough to just like be aware. But I'm the biggest fan of my competitors being successful. Please, everybody get the prices right. Everybody do a good job training. I think uh, the impact Griffin has had in our market, which we had in Connecticut as well, is we just keep raising the bar. Hey, if you're going to compete with us, you're going to spend marketing money. If you're going to compete with us, you're going to spend benefit money. If you don't want to take your guys, you're going to compete because we're going to raise the bar. By raising the bar for better people, we are willing to raise the price. I, I agree with that 100%. And I've never seen a company go into a market of that size and literally change the thinking of an entire industry in, that, in, a, in a given market. 
even though they're, they're big companies and whatever surrounding you, it was still pretty old fashioned stuff. And I'm talking eighties old fashioned mm-hmm. where it was it and fling it and get on down the road, not sixties, fifties, seventies stuff where it's, Hey, do this job hundred percent. Right. This was blow and go fast. And Tom brought a whole different kind of thing, which set him apart from everybody else. It shifted where we were a pariah. And here's what they would say. They would be like, um, you Yankees don't know. You Yankees will learn being from the North and all. And uh, we just, the secret is we just delivered good old fashioned service. We stood behind it. We were honest with people. We did not believe what everyone wanted was cheap. We looked at everything else, right? We saw this market. You guys saw it. This is a very light blue, white collar market. They're not buying the cheapest of anything else in their life. We have cheap. We have an inexpensive thing. We just started to talk about it, things, and find out they hated everything about what they were getting from everyone else, and we just delivered a different product. Now, well, from going from pariah, like what we're doing now, what you're seeing is imitation. Now, you know, the evolution has been us two, us two, us two, us two, which I love. The thing, imitation is sincerest form of flattery. It's also pisses you off too, right? Because you spend all that time creating it and they just hop on board with it. But the thing you can't do when you're the lead leader of the pack is in terms of innovation ideas is you just got to stay those two steps ahead of everybody. I do think there is uh suck to some friends last night. There's a budget thing that comes in play for companies too. If you're unwilling to charge the right amount of money to be, to stick with the leader, the leader can separate further. If the leader is willing to charge to be the leader to have the best technicians, you have to have the best pay, best benefits, best training, best everything. I'm willing to pay for that person. If you're not, well, I'll just keep spreading that gap further. I'm willing to do the marketing or buy the right tools or whatever those things are. I think everyone focuses on, well, my customers won't buy if I charge. Your customers won't buy if you don't educate. They're, they're not buying the cheapest of everything. They're not buying the lowest price. You know, why does Sizzler exist and Outback exist and Capital Grill exist? You know the one you can't get into without a reservation? Capital Grill. The most expensive one by far. You know, they're all serving steaks. They're all serving drinks. The quality and the atmosphere and the service level is just different. And so they know their clientele. The Sizzler guy's not going to Capital Grill. I get it. So we just decided to be that level of like, we're going to have all three options. You pick what you want, Mr. Customer. And then what we started to find out is people wanted the the upper the mid to the upper. And so we virtually didn't have any of the lowest tier stuff because right now we're really fortunate to be like able to say something like, we don't think it's a good fit. If you're just like, I'm getting five quotes and I'm going to have the cheapest price and da, 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 da. We'll just be like, can we, we're just going to disqualify Griffin and we'll refer you to a competitor that we think is the one you're looking for. That kind of realization was I had the benefit in Florida of having already done that in other my other businesses. But I think even from the beginning, it, it, when I was, uh, you know, just getting going with my dad, we were very clear, like, my dad put a lot of pressure on me. If we were going to offer these things and do things, we had to be profitable. Like, working with my dad, one thing about old school guys is they, they knew how to count. <laughs> they knew how, you know, how to make cash flow. And so there was always that pressure, like, are we going to make money? Are we going to make money? And so when you were increasing things, you had to then go on offset. So I can remember like going from $28 an hour 
to $32 an hour. Holy crap. And you know what? No one complained. Then 32 to 36, you know, and then we got to cross the $40 barrier. You know, now my guys in Connecticut make 50 something dollars an hour. Like we should charge half of that for freaking the rate to the customer. But um, it was just being educated enough that profit mattered. I do think that a lot of people go in business with ideals and hope the strategies, hope and pray the business has to count. Business has to do math. And um, the worst place for me, Joe, you know, is a desk in an office with like spreadsheets and, but I have to do that part to run the business. But then I now I'm able to surround myself with people who are really, really good and smarter than me. And they give me the, the nuggets that I need. But going into it, I think anyone who launches a business without real, real specific financial details that they can measure against is on a hope and pray strategy, you know, and that's probably why businesses fail so often. They don't know their damn numbers. So if I know my numbers and I'm not hitting them, I could change my plan. I could do something different. My dad and I joke, I'd be like, hey, listen, you know, 160,000 in a year. That would be like a week that we want to jump off the building and commit suicide. If it would leak, if a week was you know what we should do in a year, even as the scale, the numbers are still like every single day. What's the number? What's the number? What's the number? What's the number? Because it's like flying a plane and not knowing your altitude or your fuel gauge or whatever. You guys saw it. That's how we always thought about things: is where are we going? What are we doing? How are we improving things? And that that came really from the beginning of you know, thirty some years ago. You used to tell me your dad would show up in the office, even though he didn't really ever work in Florida. People would still kind of look at him and go, oh, straighten their back. And I always think it's funny to share. Tom once told me that he put an office behind his with the only entrance being through Tom's office. And that way, nobody else could come and get to their dad and get their feelings hurt and quit. <laughs> yeah, he had. A, we had a rule. Don't speak to any employees. <laughs> so if I ever saw someone go to his office, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on there? Because <laughs> he he did not hold back. Today, like I tell him right now, like we he was over last week and we were having dinner and I was talking to him and he recognizes all the HR stuff and all the politically correct stuff. He's like, I could never. I'm like, oh, yeah, we would be getting in so much trouble if you were. <laughs> We'd be decimated with every type of fine there is because of um, lawsuits. <laughs> but I actually would say like, you know, in reality, whether it's PC or whatever one's views are, he was, he's the most fair person. If he said it, there's a seed of truth in there. However, he put it out that might've upset you or offended you. The thing is it didn't offend people of our generation. We took it as our, you know, an elder giving us things and like, I'm going to respect it. I'm going to learn from it. It's, it's like my kids that were, they're always, it's funny because they're like, grandpa, you can't say that. And he's like, I can say whatever the hell I want to say. Um, <laughs> but in business, we had a temper for sure. Be like, okay, the girl will bring you your paper and your coffee and we'll, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. Just don't talk to any employees. When I was a, an apprentice with him, we had this very large liquor store up a couple of towns away. We did a ton of work for him and they hadn't paid us. So my dad's like, okay, we're going to go get the money collected. And he had a briefcase and he never carried a briefcase ever. So we go and they have like one of those secretary that is the gatekeeper for the boss. And my dad asked for whoever the guy was and oh, he's not available. So my dad just walks past her like a movie, right? Opens the door, goes in the guy's office, walks right up to his desk and sets his briefcase down. And I'm like 
probably 17, 18 years old. I'm kind of like, what is happening? <laughs> he pops his briefcase on the desk he op- and he opens it up and the secretary's like, I'm sorry, Mr. So-and-so. It's like, no problem. And the guy knows my dad knows our company and that he knows he owes money. So my dad's like, I need here to get paid. And, and the guy says, I'm going to have to get the records. And my dad opens the briefcase with a file in there with the records. But on top of it, he has a handgun. He takes the handgun and puts it on the desk beside and picks the file out. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> what in the holy hell? And don't you know, the guy's like, get me a check for this much money. And gets his check, puts it in the briefcase, puts the gun back, and out we go. Like, that would be a police. We'd, we'd be visited by the police today if that anything happened like that. But that's like, that's the uh, the experience of, of the old man. He could count, and he was there to prove it. Yeah, it's it funny. And he told me, like, afterwards, don't ever do that. I wanted you to see it, but don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like driving when you're teaching your son to drive, and you're like, just don't act like me. <laughs> don't do this. What did uh, your dad say when we opened up plumbing? What was his reaction? He was all for like, hey, if you can do for plumbing what you did for AC, you'll kill it because there's even less plumbers. You know, in our trade, there's like a million AC guys. There's less plumbers and there's less electricians. And he was yeah. essentially like, just do what you do. Just be yourself, be Griffin and do it in plumbing and you'll kick ass. And uh, we did. And so, so we're starting to do that in electrical now too. But um, that that's my dad has always just been like, just be faithful to who you are. Just do what you've always done. That's like consistency. That's like a key. But he's right? also the guy with the gas, the gas can. Like if you mess up, he's going to tell you. He doesn't suffer fools well, including me. You know, I have two other brothers. They're each own their own HR companies. And he has very strong opinions about things. I had to say to him, stop using me as an example. I'm the big brother. Don't keep saying your brother, your brother, your brother, because then they, they're pissed at me. I didn't do anything. He has a very black and white filter, like right is right, yeah. wrong is wrong. I don't care who you are. My my grandmother used to always say this because early on in our career, we started winning awards for designs and projects we did and stuff. And my grandmother tempered me early on saying, if you're resting on your laurels, you're wearing them in the wrong place. I'll never forget. She told me that if you're resting on your laurels, you're wearing them in the wrong place. Just because you you know did something great this past year and you got an award for it. What's next? What's next? What's next? Hey, Tom, I forgot that uh, I have a list of questions that I need to shoot. <laughs> I can bullshit all day long, man. Like I love all these stories they are just in my DNA from from doing it. That is one of the great, great privileges and honors of my life is working with my dad for so long. We, yeah. I have so many stories. He will live in my, you know, he's alive. Thank God. But when it, he'll always live up here for, for all of time, uh, his great. voice and all the things that we we've done together. Well, that kind of is, it bonds with the question. What fulfills you the most about the last 38 years? I wanted to always be the best at what I did. And so achieving that at whatever level that my very best I could do has been great. But as I've gone through the 38 years, really what I I look back on now, and I just look at the impact on people, employees, family, customers. If I go back to Connecticut and I'm in a bar having a beer and then all of a sudden beer show up and it's like, you look across the corner and it's some guy that was an apprentice for you 15 years ago. And he comes over and says, my God, man, I have my life and I'm married now and I have kids and they still call me boss, boss, you gave me my start. And that gives me goosebumps like to this day. 
So I love that about the trades. I have amazing friendships and peer relationships with people. The business we're in, the industry, the trades, is just such great, roughneck, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth people. And just to be part of any of their journeys, the friendships and the relationships and the impact that we have in each other's lives, that's that's what's made the 38 years. That's why I don't see, like I'm still going to keep pushing in some way, shape, or form um, because I just love, I love the impact of people's lives. There's a reason that I didn't write these questions because I'm the great derailer. Of all the sleepless nights, which one has made the most difference to you? There's a couple of questions. So the last most sleepless night was the decision to sell Connecticut and take an investment in Florida. And while it was a life-changing, generational-changing decision that was positive, it felt incredibly pressure-filled to make it right. So that was just going back 18 months ago or so. Before that, I think there's been times where in a family business, there's familial conflicts. So I've had, I've had to fire brothers, cousins. I had to let my wife go once. <laughs> so I have a very clear sense of the greater good. So sleepless nights when you know you've got to go have a hard conversation. Those are probably the ones. Every business owner has sleepless nights for finances and stuff. But finances always work out. It's more relationship, like I've got to end a long-term relationship or have a confrontation that I don't want to end a relationship. What book, podcast, or audio book are you currently on? The book I just finished literally today is called Outwitting the Devil. <laughs> it's a Napoleon Hill book. It's a essentially a fictitious interview with the devil but not religious interview. Very interesting insights into following kind of up on thinking grow rich type of principles. It was a good read. I recommend everyone would, uh, they'd be, they would give them stuff to think about. The problem I see today with my own children is we think the schools are there to teach them what to think, memorize the test, do this. Do, no one's teaching anyone how to think. And that the book Outwitting the Devil is a lot to do about the trap of not learning how to think for any aspect of, of life. Uh, but in business, uh, it's a good book for anyone in business to read to understand some stuff. Critical thinking was the most important class that there was, and now it's not uh, mm. anywhere in anybody's vocabulary anymore. If you had one piece of advice to give the teenage you, what would it be? Don't discount the trades. AI is coming into play. Educational systems are what they are. You will never replace a tradesman turning wrenches and running wires and being smart. And it's incredibly satisfying. It's incredibly enriching, make a fantastic living. And it's only going to be more and more of that as people retire. So don't discount the trades. Follow who you are. And if you like to be with people and you like to be outside and you like to fix things, don't discount the trades. There's a lot of information. And, uh, and there's so much for Tom and his businesses and life. I told him ahead of time, it's going to be hard to keep the time frame down. 
we had that talk the other day. Um, but we never really have brief conversations. So. It's accountability. There's a lack of accountability just generally everywhere. And it, it seeps into the businesses and then people wonder why profits and results and quality and culture. Culture is a decision of every single individual in the business. I think everyone was like, we got to build a culture. I call bullshit on that. Culture is built by building the people and showing the people a vision and, and supporting that vision and demonstrating that vision and, and standing up for it. If you have a culture of integrity, you walk away from dirty money because that's not integrity. And when they see you walk away from that, they go, wow, it's not just a saying on the wall. This, this guy means it. Um, and, and I think Evan did hit on something just being, being grateful. Man, one of the philosophies we live by every single day in my life, my kids, my, my spouse, my business, my friends, my peers, everything happens for you. Nothing happens to you. And every failure and every hardship is a seed, a seed of positivity, not a plant, not a flower, but you got to cultivate that seed. So everything goes haywire. <laughs> it's the fan in there. Some places like an opportunity to grow something, learn something, improve something. And, and that was really a lot of what the gas can issue, you know, I'll damn tell you what I, I don't never run out of gas ever, you know, and everybody who works for me has heard that story as an illustration for not doing dumb things. I would basically say if somebody ran out of gas for me, I would follow my dad's example and bring him an empty gas can. Business is kind of a series of life's, life's lessons, right? I think if you've picked apart any business person in any industry that's successful, you're going to hear things uh, like it's not about the money. The money's great. But no one's going to be ever on their deathbed looking for more money. They're going to be looking for more time. Time for what? Time to spend with their family. Time to spend with their spouse. Time to spend doing what they love. Life is life. You only get one. And so if the business doesn't serve you, if you don't set it up the right way, if you're not grateful along the way, if you don't change other people's lives, then it's all about the money. That's a very hollow success. It's a lonely success. So, um... I think that's that's probably the lessons in there from my uh, grandparents and, and dad. It was just about don't be part of the, what's that, uh, FOMO my kids say, fear of missing out. I got to tell you guys, I'm the luckiest son of a bitch you ever met in your life. And I get up every day and my life is exactly perfect for me. And I don't want what anyone else has. And that makes me the richest man in the world. And uh, I think if everyone took that approach and, and even from your podcast trying to learn Learn what you want. If you want to be the $100 million guy, that's awesome. If you want to be the $10 million guy, that's awesome. If you want to be the $5 million guy, whatever that is, just be true to you and enjoy the damn journey because this shit could change it any day. You know, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So live the shit out of today and really be the best human you could be and the best spouse and the best dad and the best boss and the best citizen and the best whatever so that... You know, when your day comes, the people will get up to talk about you. They got really good things to say. And there's a lot of whiskey to drink because they're all giving you shots, you know. I'll drink to that. Let's, let's do that a lot. In this episode, Tom Casey. Find more info at primedincome.com. All right, Evan, turn the recording off.